Hello, and welcome to this podcast with James Keevy, CEO of Jet Education Services, and Judith Eaton, President of the Council for Higher Education Accreditation, or CHIA. In this podcast, Judith will be interviewing James about digitization and its impact on higher education and quality assurance. James recently authored a paper for CHIA titled, Has Quality Assurance Become Obsolete in the Digital Era? Let's hear what he has to say on this important topic. Judith, let's get started. I spent a lot of time, James, reflecting on your very thoughtful and significant policy brief that that is also on the CHIO website and have a number of questions, areas I'd like to explore with you. And I'll just jump right in. In the policy brief, you start out by talking about how we're living in a digital era. In fact, you say that the digital era is our new normal. What, from your perspective, James, are the major features of this, and how is it affecting higher education? Thanks, Judith, for the opportunity to talk to you and to talk about a topic that, as we spoke uh, earlier, I really enjoy speaking about, and it's such an exciting place we are as a global community to have these discussions. So a couple of responses uh, in relation to your question. I think uh, I work mainly in South Africa and Africa, and despite the fact that these are mainly developing countries, I realize that we are more connected than we were ever before. I often use this Facebook picture, uh, Facebook coverage in 2014, I think, and then I compare it with 2017. It's pretty amazing to see how Facebook as a proxy for connectivity across the world has increased exponentially. So there's something about this connectivity that we need to take into account. Then what about cell phones? I mean, when you talk about Africa and the developing world, cell phones, I mean, there are more cell phones in Africa, South Africa, than there are people. So this also adds to this idea that we're more and more connected. Online learning has been part of higher education for a long time, and we've been speaking about ODL, open distance learning, for many years. But we see ODL going into a kind of new phase now where learning is no longer in these clinical, formal, non-formal, informal definitions. And I think higher education is ready to embrace this new world that is more connected and where ODL is transforming into new forms of learning, which I'm sure we can talk about just now. We also see technology impacting on our work. There's a theory, it's called the hollowing out thesis, and if anybody's listening to this podcast wants to go Google it and search on it, it's such an interesting area where we see how technology is impacting on work and jobs, in particular mid-level jobs. So not the bottom end, not the kind of data taggers, not the top end, the professionals, but the mid-level jobs. So when we look at where we are as a world at the moment, there's no doubt that this digital revolution that we're part of is impacting on education. It's impacting on higher education in particular, and we can drill down a bit deeper, Judith, if you want. I think it's impacting on how we understand qualifications as proxies for learning. There's a lot of stuff happening there, and let's see whether we can find the time to talk about it now. Would you say a little bit more about the impact on higher education? In thinking about our discussion today, I really I kind of mapped out a, just a pathway for me around what's been happening and how these things are impacting on higher education. I think in the kind of 60s, 70s, 80s, we spoke about more traditional ways that higher education thought about delivering training using curriculum-based approaches, not having much consistency across universities, having a kind of a lot of differentiation, which was both good and bad, so it wasn't all bad. 
Then we see the last, probably from the 1990s onwards and even to the present day, this rise of contemporary frameworks called qualification frameworks. Now, the U.S. is an anomaly in this in the sense that the U.S. has been slightly outside of this debate. But the 140 countries across the world that now have qualification frameworks, there are even continents. And if you're interested, Judith, we can drill a bit deeper on what's happening continentally. Then we see a new wave coming at the moment, again, impacting on higher education and how it understands the digital implications on learning. And it's something called world reference levels, which we'll talk about just now as well, Judith. And I see this as a kind of new normative instrument that that the world is, is exploring. And then the last area, which I hope we can drill down a little bit, is where is all of this going in the next 10 to 15 years? I see a lot of work, uh, we do a lot of work around uh, decentralized data ecosystems at the moment, looking at data privacy, even looking at things like digital identities. So I think uh, the world is going through these different phases from curriculum to qualifications to credentials and now even talking about digital identities. I think this is the kind of things I hope we can unpack a little bit today. So you see uh, an emerging future, James, in which the there's a major emphasis on non-formal learning you see technology as the as mediating learning perhaps the primary impact on for the future how we go about learning and at least as i think i hear you that qualifications which is a, a term we often associate with traditional degrees moving yes. to credentials. Is is that what I hear you saying? Absolutely not. Push even beyond credentials, Judith. I think uh, we're looking at uh, credentials probably for the next couple, five years, maybe to 10 years growing exponentially. But even moving beyond that, where the digital becomes the learning. So as opposed to the digital mediating the learning, I think, and particularly in, in more developed countries, but but probably across the globe, that the digital will become the learning and will be the representation of the learning. Could I stop you yeah. for a second there? Sure. Help me, please, and maybe some of our our listeners here. What does it mean to say the digital becomes the learning? I don't have all the answers, Judith, but I'm going to try, and I think this is a good discussion to have uh, with, with uh, the listeners as well. I see a kind of move where we, uh, new forms of technology, and AI is the one that we talk about most often, are taking over so many parts of what we do, not only in learning, but of course in our daily lives. And can we dream of, of a future where everything we do and everything we are and everything we learn becomes part of this digital identity that I carry with me? That, of course, has to be protected because that is, I mean, there's a lot of risk around that kind of thing. But where my learning is no longer structured into periods or credentials or qualifications, but it it becomes just this very seamless thing that I think UNESCO thought about in its kind of conceptualization of lifelong learning, even in the 60s. But only now the technology enables us to really practically make that kind of ongoing, everyday, anywhere learning possible through a a digital credential that evolves into a digital identity. I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's kind of where my head is going, Judith. No, I think what you're describing, James, and I... it does make sense. It, it also sounds a little strange, but, but you're talking about really a whole new paradigm for learning, whether it's training, whether it's a, higher, it's a more traditional higher education degree, and we're not going to think of education as 
a place to which we go episodically, even over yes. a sustained period of time, but it, it's mm. just going to be with us all all the time. You said learning anywhere, anytime. And I'm mm. struggling to get my head around it, but it's something that it's it's wonderful to have that concept and and over time be reflecting on what that means and how it is affecting traditional higher education because we've been emphasizing in the last few minutes change on the mm. one hand and what's on at the horizon or even over the horizon but it is still the case that for many many if not the vast majority of students worldwide, they're experiencing education, teaching, and learning in a more traditional mode. And I think this is a, I don't know, we call it a dream or a vision, Judith, about where we could be. Maybe it's closer than we think. And, and maybe that's that's what's challenging me in, in the work that I do the last couple of years. Because this this vision of a completely fluid system where, as you say, you're not linked to particular instances or periods where in the learning takes place. Maybe we're talking about something that we're not ready for yet. I mean, our systems are definitely not ready for it. But technology is, is moving at such a pace that um, I think we need to embrace this new thinking and link to that. And it's something we will talk about today is how do you test the veracity of the kind of learning that yes. takes place in, in this more fluid space? Because quality right. assurance is, is very conventional in the way we're doing it. And I think our quality assurance approaches have not kept up with where the world is going. And so we need to embrace this veracity of the learning as well in our, in our engagement with credentials and digital identities. Before we move to quality assurance, if I may, you mentioned yes. the world reference levels and you talk about that in your policy brief as well. Is that to you, James, an example of this path we are on to, as you just said, a completely fluid system? I think it's part of the path, Judith. It's a it's an initiative that's been championed by UNESCO and, and the ILO, the International Labor Organization. It's been ongoing since 2014, a discussion around the international normative instrument. Uh, an easy way to describe it would be as a forex converter. If I have different currencies, I've got to convert these currencies from one country to the next, from one currency to the next. But what about learning if we can have a conversion mechanism for learning that happens in different contexts and different countries and different ways that they're being described? So the World Reference Levels has attempted to do a bit of this forex conversion thing uh, with learning. There's some pilots running, and if you want, we can explore it a little bit more. But uh, my response to you, Judith, would be yes. I think it's an attempt, and it's a recent attempt, so it's five years old, about trying to move closer to this new world. But I think there's more to it that we can talk about. The world reference levels would be one example. But I, I was just trying, James, to become a, a bit concrete as as we're discussing learning anytime, anywhere in this completely sure. fluid system. So what we're saying is the free exchange of understanding and judgments about learning have to be part of the system. And the world reference label is one way to proceed. World reference tool is one way to proceed with this. Yeah, so let's be practical. Digital credentials is something that I suppose is, is a good practical example that is starting to push the boundaries. And many universities are starting to use it. I actually, when I prepared for our discussion today, I picked up an article from Australia. And the topic of the title is micro-credentialing as a sustainable way for universities in Australia. 
just as an example, so there's a lot of discussion at university level around micro-credentials. And so that would be a practical kind of way of thinking about what's happening. The world reference levels links to that because through the, the world reference levels, one tries to look at these new forms of learning through a lens of what is the level of the learning and also how does it link to particular jobs. So, I mean, yes, so short answers, I think the world reference is a nice practical example, link it to digital credentials, and we've got something that's happening now. That's not even a future, a future discussion. Now, I am going to go to quality assurance, and to our listeners who are particularly concerned about that, you, you've been patient. But I think what James is sharing with us, the picture that he's painting is vitally important to understanding our future. Now, in your policy brief, James, you say quality assurance is not only important, it's going to be more important than ever on the one hand. On the other hand, you observe, and I would agree with you, that the pace of change in the new world of learning is much more rapid than the current pace of change in quality assurance. And yeah. you suggest a number of things we we might do. But would you you speak to that, speak to what you would like to see emerge? And if you have any advice for those of us in accreditation and, and quality assurance about how to speed up the current pace of change for us, that would be most welcome. Let's have a go, Judith. I, of course, don't have all the answers, but I've got lots of questions as well. A couple of things that come to mind. Uh, my own background in quality assurance, particularly in qualification frameworks, has shown me that, that quality assurance is often a very top-down bureaucratic exercise. Where the world is going is the opposite. It's a peer-review, uh, bottom-up, organic thing that happens with learning and how learning gets utilized. I mean, learning we see in the digital credential space and going forward would be people will do these credentials because they have value in the workplace. They have currency. They, they're less concerned about whose quality assurance stamp is, is on that certification. I think this is the challenge we're finding as the traditional kind of approaches to quality assurance and where we're going. So the challenge to us then as a community is how do we think about quality assurance differently? Do we think about digital forms of quality assurance? And I'm really I'm asking questions here because I think very few countries and regions have really uh, solved this problem or, or actually even grappling with it. New Zealand has done some interesting work, and I referred to it in the policy brief as well. They're piloting a bit of these ideas. And there are one or two other countries that are trying, but it's still very early days when it comes to this. I think a couple of points around this, we need to look at more peer-to-peer -peer kind of networks and reviews as opposed to the top-down things. Uh, we need to use the technology itself to do the quality assurance. So blockchain has been very hot, but there's something about blockchain, which is that immutable kind of series of decisions that cannot be changed, that allows us to test the authenticity of where the learning took place. So it's as if we need to embrace the technology to do new quality assurance, of the new types of learning that is happening in the digital space. And I think there's a lot for us to do, but we've got to catch up. We've got to embrace these ideas. The, the private sector, the kind of non-formal, informal sector, I think is doing some interesting things in this area. Uh, burning glass comes to mind uh, in the US. Uh, the Lumina Foundation is doing good work, and there are many others. So I think this is an interesting debate, and I think we need to embrace it and, and be part of it as opposed to kind of let it slip away from, from those of us that have worked in this sector for many years. As one who's been working in the accreditation and quality assurance area for a long time, 
I can sit here and say, yes, we do want the emphasis on peer-to-peer. We do want the bottom-up. And in in fact, in the U.S., accreditation was developed around these preferences. At the same time, around the world, governments play a very strong role in what accreditation quality assurance do. And I'm asking you in a way a political question. The governments want the top down. The U.S. is an interesting example because your system has evolved very differently, in my view, at least from many of the other countries. You don't have a qualifications framework for a start. As I mentioned, the majority of other countries across the world has. I think you're incredibly well positioned to think about and embrace uh, these new ideas of quality assurance because your system has evolved in that direction kind of organically where the others have to decide whether they're going to change tack um, or not. And so I think that's an interesting point you make, which I fully agree with. Another uh, point you make in the article, James, around quality assurance is that it will be more private sector driven. So do you see more actors in this space? I mean, in all countries, governments, as I said, play a significant role. And most quality assurance bodies are embedded in government, even though they have a certain level of of independence. So we're going to see new types of organizations, new kinds of practices. They're going to come out of the private sector or civil society. Is that your thinking? So I need to answer you on two levels. I think the the availability of learning through whatever means is going to proliferate. And there's probably, as you point out, going to be a strong kind of um, unregulated private sector voice coming through. We already see it. The second question, which I think is more interesting, Judith, is how about the growth of independent private quality assurance agencies that are not linked to governments? Now, that's a controversial topic, and it's one we can probably talk about for a long time. But we're seeing the rise of these kind of bodies, particularly when it comes to data at the moment. So you see uh, bodies that are that are doing that are looking at data, but in particular looking at the verification of the authenticity of, of credentials. And you're seeing a kind of privatized kind of trend in this direction, which is quite interesting because to some extent, one might argue they're trying to kind of wrestle it away from the governments and in the more conventional bureaucratic countries. On the other hand, it might just be organic growth and, and maybe it's it's okay. But I think there's definitely a move there both in the offerings that are available and in the quality assurance that there's a move away from governments. And countries like France, for example, uh, they're not going to—they're going to struggle to buy into this kind of stuff, having a very strong legacy and history of of government involvement and pretty much anything that is that is authentic and quality assured. So I think we've got a long way to go on in this discussion, but we're definitely seeing a move towards these new types of organisations growing, both in provisioning and I would argue even in the kind of verification and authenticity of of the of the of the learning. One of the reasons I I asked you is, as as I know you're aware, Chia has developed what we call the quality platform, which is a form of external quality review for alternative providers. Uh, Whether we're talking about MOOCs or we're talking about Straighter Line in the U.S. or Future Learn in the the U.K., and I was talking... A couple weeks ago to a colleague in one of our major foundations here about giving us some additional support for the quality platform. 
And one of the responses that I got is as much as doing this was attractive and it addressed the changing universe on the one hand. On the other hand, they wanted this change to come from within our traditional accreditation community. They didn't want something outside the community. And that really startled me, disappointed me too, Mm. but it startled me because I, I think that puts a limit on the creativity that that can mm. emerge. So Judith, you and I are probably in the same place. I think the world reference levels was an attempt from the more traditional um, community, let's call it quality assurance, higher education, uh, vocational, to try and move into this new era. But I'm wondering whether it, it will have a role, and I think I'm, I'm supportive of the idea of the world reference levels, but I think we need more. And I think whatever comes from from the bureaucracy, let's just use that word in, in, in this way, will always be suspect. And, and there's something about it growing organically outside of that bureaucracy that, I don't know, that is appealing to the world. And I'm, I'm not quite sure how we're going to manage this because it can run away completely. And I don't know, how do we, the, the challenge to us would be around quality and can quality mediate itself like a Wikipedia uh, mediates the content that is on the Wikipedia through a collaborative organic process. I, maybe it can. Uh, Wikipedia has shown us it can be done. Can we do quality assurance in a similar way? I, I worked with a colleague at Commonwealth of Learning a couple of years ago, actually maybe even 10 years ago, and we spoke about wiki qualifications. And so yeah. it's like there's, there's something about as, as a global community and society that technology now enables us to do things collaboratively organically that is better than than what we had before but i mean i'm also grappling with the same questions judith it helps me to understand because as we try to move forward with this issue of the digital revolution and the change in credentialing and the change in style and structure of of learning We all say, oh, we need to be addressing quality in this context. And it is very hard still for all of us to get beyond saying that this is what we need to do. And that's where I was really appreciating what you said a bit earlier when I asked you about what it would take to change the quality assurance that we do now. You mentioned more bottom-up peer-to-peer review. You mentioned perhaps digital form of quality assurance, and I realize these are exploratory. But we, we need to be able to conceptualize, and just as you're putting forth a, a paradigm for learning that is very different, we're going to need a paradigm for quality assurance to match that change in mm. learning. And Judith, just to add to that, it's going to come whether we involved or not. And so it's our opportunity to embrace it and influence it because, I mean, if we don't, as maybe a more traditional community, it will come and it will take over what we do and we will have no say in it. James, I want to ask you one more question and then you may have some final comments. And the question is this, uh, much of the discussion around uh, credentials and different approaches to learning is grounded in consideration of career or vocational skills or training or education. Uh, What about 
going forward, the more traditional liberal arts, uh, the humanities, the theoretical science uh, and mathematics disciplines, how how will that play out in, in this emerging world? The short answer is I've got no idea, Judith, but I'm going to try. I think there are a couple of interesting things. We see um, more fluidity in learning. We spoke about that a couple of times today. So it's no longer the formal, non-formal, informal, that those classical OECD definitions. So this fluidity impacts on all disciplines and, and not only maybe the, the kind of um, – not not any specific ones, to be honest. So, and I think so. That's something that we need to look at and understand. I also see um, kind of more more ag- agility in, in terms of the way that the learning gets offered across again across disciplines and schools and, and and different philosophies. I'm just thinking of an example that I can give you, maybe from the US context. But where, where people are when they go for interviews, of course, CVs and these kind of things are important. But in most cases now, you would find the kind of screening competency assessment that happens to test whether this person coming from liberal arts or from whatever kind of school of thought gets like, okay, we see where you've been. We see where you've trained. We see your CV. Come and do this assessment and we will know for sure whether you're a good fit with the job. Um, Pymetrics is, is the example that, that came to mind for me. P-Y-M-E-T-R-I-C-S. They work with Fortune 500 companies and they can, in, in, in a two-minute assessment, they've got a very good fit with jobs. So I think the world that we're working in, Judith, and that we're going into is more and more, I don't know, less structured and more about the demonstrated ability to show competence as opposed to the focus on, on, on the actual credential or the way the credential is formulated. Many people, and I mean, we can use young people in this example, uh, somebody who's been playing computer games, a young man or a young woman, computer games for a large part of their lives in this new generation, they're probably ready for quite a few of the new jobs that you and I would never be ready for. They would need no training. They don't have to go to liberal arts or wherever. They're probably quite ready to do that job pretty well. And this is challenging our, our, our paradigm of thinking how learning through building a very strong philosophical foundation, then specializing in later years, uh, going into masters and PhDs, it challenges all of that. So I don't know. So my, my response to you, Judith, would be I think some of these things might be a bit too way out and people might say, well, we'll always need the masters and the PhD and, and so on. And others might say, well, we'll get to a point where those things become obsolete. I think we've got a transition period to go through. There's there's time uh, for this kind of thinking to happen, but it's also happening at a pace. And I think organizations like CHIA and others have this opportunity through various platforms to open these debates so that universities can be ready for them and can influence the way they go. So we will keep on doing work in the liberal arts. However, the expectation associated with the results of that kind of educational experience will change and that will affect what we do and how we judge liberal arts education. James, uh, any other issues, comments uh, that you you wanted to make sure we address today? I think a few, just very briefly, uh, Judith, I know we're also a little bit out of time. I think uh, Digital quality assurance is is what we need to hold in our minds around what does digital quality assurance mean? We've got how do we harness this revolution of technology in to do quality assurance differently? I think that's a challenge I would put out to all of us as a global community. Maybe we even need to call it by a different name. Maybe it's not quality assurance, but I think you get the direction I'm going. I think the world reference level process 
is useful. I think people need to get to it in a bit more detail. Um, we can also make some of this more available through UNESCO so people can embrace. We're running some pilots. It's it's a it's a maybe a modest attempt at, at engaging with this debate, but what's good about it, it's a very practical attempt. And so people can engage with it in a very real way. I think uh, decentralized data is really something that's important. We didn't really get to today, Judith, but underlying all our discussions here would be data. Data on learning, data on people, data on jobs. And for me, that is the real kind of, I suppose, the, the, the bottom of the iceberg that is not sticking out above the water is conversations around data. Because if we can understand data in more interoperable ways, learning becomes easier, credentialing changes, and then, of course, quality assurance can also change because the data is available in, in new ways and different ways than we would have known it before. So for me, that would be one of the key things uh, for us to really think about going forward. Last point. So what about chair? I think chair is well-placed to pioneer this exploration. It's, I mean, we can find the right word for it. I think you need to work with UNESCO and other bodies that have already tried some of this, but you guys are well-positioned to really push a little bit further. And I think interdisciplinary fields are useful beyond the quality assurance community uh, that me, as a, for a start, is, is very familiar with. You, you allow us to move beyond that traditional quality assurance community because of the history of the U.S. when it comes to this kind of thing. And maybe my last, last point is around a very practical suggestion. I think something like an international call or a competition for ideas will go a long way to raise awareness and encourage some out-of-the-box thinking. So my challenge to Chia would be, hey, put out something there. Let's get people, people that we would never expect to engage with this debate to give us some ideas around how quality assurance can happen in a digital world, how learning can happen in this digital world, and also how we can manage data in more um, innovative and creative ways. Thank you, James and Judith, for taking the time to speak with us. To read James' paper on digitization and quality assurance, or for more information on accreditation, visit the Council for Higher Education Accreditation's website at www.chea.org.